All right, good morning. Happy Easter to all of you. Hope you guys are having a good Easter morning so far. Um, I'm really happy to be worshiping uh, with you, along with my uh, wife who's here and my kids who are uh, over in the other room. If there's, a, if there's ever a day that it was fitting for us to uh, gather in the name of Jesus and to praise the Lord together for the salvation that he's given us, um, it would be today. So uh, I pray that the, uh, that the Lord would fill your heart with, with joy over uh, salvation and uh, the hope of the resurrection. And um, hopefully this, our, our time in the word this morning will also help you with that. As you can see from our title slide, um, the title of today's message is He Brings Down to Sheol and Brings Up. And that's a statement that comes from 1 Samuel 2, 6. Uh, Sheol refers to the place of the dead or the grave. And so this statement is saying that God uh, brings down or brings people down uh, to the grave, to the place of the dead, but he also brings them up from there. And so I thought this would be a good verse for us to think about together on Easter. Uh, Today is a day in which we remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day. And as one of the verses that we just read says, uh, If Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins, says the Apostle Paul. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we have hope. Uh, Death has indeed been defeated. And we too will live with Christ, just as he rose from the dead. And the confident hope of every Christian, including us here, is that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for our sins, restored our relationship to God the Father, and given us eternal life. And his resurrection from the dead especially proves that he really is the Son of God and has defeated death. But the very first Easter, the original Easter, on which Jesus rose from the dead, was mostly a surprise. As far as we can tell from the New Testament, if you're to look at the four Gospels, it doesn't look like there were actually uh, like what we would call sermons preached on the original Easter. Um, and that was because uh, most people were really surprised about it. Uh, some of the verses that we just read talked about how uh, the disciples, they didn't understand it first. Some of them uh, didn't even believe, and they were skeptical even. Now, these disciples refer to uh, mainly the 12 disciples and probably some others. But on the other hand, there were some uh, uh, some women believers, uh, uh, like Mary Magdalene, and there was another Mary, um, who saw the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. And they seemed to understand more quickly. Uh, They remembered Jesus' words, even as they felt a great deal of fear and joy. And so it's pretty interesting to see how the disciples on the whole, they were slower um, to believe and to understand Jesus' resurrection, and they were male. Whereas, according to the New Testament, it uh, it was women believers who got it quicker. And uh, some of them were privileged to see the resurrected Jesus earlier. This Easter morning, we are going to learn from yet another godly woman who lived about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. But she's the one who spoke these words. She would have fit right in with those early women believers who saw the resurrected Jesus and passed the news to the disciples, even though they didn't get it too quickly. The godly woman who spoke these words was Hannah. 
So our sermon text comes from her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I'm going to read her entire prayer from 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 10. And of course we're going to focus on one of those verses. So that's the one we're focusing on. And here we go. 1 Samuel Samuel 2 verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up uh, uh, the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Uh, Let's pray before we continue. Father, we thank you uh, once again for this Easter morning in which we can gather um, in person in the name of Jesus to honor you. We pray that you would be pleased with our worship to you today, uh, not because of how well we do it, Lord, but rather because we offer it all in humility and in faith in Christ. And so accept our worship even as you have accepted us in Christ. Also give us hope, uh, renewed strength and encouragement of the gospel itself, and especially the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon which it all depends. We pray that we would experience more of this new life that you've already given to us through your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you might have seen from this passage, uh, Hannah makes this pretty amazing statement, and I It's the name of the sermon today, and I have also uh, uh, underlined it in our scripture reading, in which she says that the Lord brings down to Sheol, or the place of the dead, and brings up. Um, You know, if somebody said that after Jesus had already uh, been risen from the dead, uh, you might not think that that's all that surprising. But remember that Hannah lived about a thousand years before Jesus was born. How did she know that? How would she make such a remarkable statement? Um, I th- what we're going to do is to spend some time getting to know uh, Hannah and why she would say this. Um, let me tell you, first of all, the answer is not because she was an eyewitness of another person <laughs> being risen from the dead. That wasn't the reason. It's not, if you were to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's not what happened. But she did experience something very special. Um, She experienced another mighty work of God that made her think of all the things that God can do. 
So uh, let's back it up into the first few verses of uh, today's scripture reading. Uh, this entire passage, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is a prayer of Hannah. And as you can tell from the first couple verses, she is really happy. As she says that she rejoices, her heart rejoices, she praises the Lord for his salvation. And you can't tell right away uh, what has happened. Um, but apparently she also has enemies. Because the, in the middle of verse 1, she says that uh, she rejoices over her enemies. And apparently, and if you skip down to verse 3, uh, she may have encountered some of her enemies speaking boastfully. Now, all of this so far is not too specific, right? So what, what exact challenge did she face? What enemies did she have? What were her enemies doing to her? Uh, a lot of times in the Bible, when you think of enemies, you might think of uh, some kind of battle, right? Like David is in war or Israel is trying to get out of Egypt. And there's some kind of military and sometimes violent conflict. But Hannah didn't experience a military conflict. She wasn't in that kind of conflict. Now, some of us may know this story already. Um, in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and let me just summarize a little bit here because it's not in our passage. Um, the conflict that, that Hannah experienced was in her own family. Uh, Hannah was married to a man that had two wives. And so Hannah was one of two wives of her husband. Uh, the other wife's name was Penina. And as 1 Samuel chapter 1, that is the previous chapter, tells us, um, Hannah could not bear children. She was what we would call barren. On the other hand, the other wife uh, of her husband's name, whose name was Penina, she was able to have children. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1 doesn't say exactly how many there were, but it does refer to her sons and daughters who would receive gifts from her husband. So on top of not feeling very good about uh, not being able to bear children, uh, this rival of hers, Penina, who's part of the same complicated family, would also provoke her. She would give her a hard time. And at times, Hannah would be so distressed uh, that she, she would just be very distressed, as First Samuel chapter 1 says. But Hannah was someone who loved the Lord and trusted the Lord. And so what she did was that she prayed to the Lord to enable her to give birth to a child. And God actually heard her prayer and enabled her to uh, conceive, to become pregnant, and ultimately give birth to Samuel. Now, uh, when she gave birth to, to uh, even before she gave birth to Samuel, she made a promise to the Lord. She said, if you give me this a child, uh, I will give him back to you. Uh, Samuel then would be uh, what's called a Nazarite. He wouldn't cut his hair. He would be dedicated to the Lord. And in his case, not just for a short period of time, but for his whole life. And his mom, Hannah, dedicated him to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. And so by the time that he was old enough, he was still a young boy. She brought him to the temple and Samuel was there serving Eli, the high priest, uh, continuously. Now, how does that connect to Hannah's prayer? Because she says a lot of things in her prayer and in this passage um, that don't relate to her giving birth to a child. Uh, how do all these things uh, fit together? Uh, I think the answer is because Hannah was someone who knew God. 
And she wasn't just somebody who um, really wanted something, in her case, to have a child, and then prayed about it, and then got it, you know, she had the child, and then just went on her merry way. Uh, she didn't just pray and ask God for something, get it, and then just move on with her life and say, thanks, that's great, I'm going to move on. Um, I'm going to keep going now. I got what I want, thanks God, that's great. Rather, based on her prayer, she seems to be someone who knows a lot about God. Because when she sees her own experience as uh, of, of giving birth to Samuel as just one example among many of God's salvation. Um, she knows that God has done many, many other things. And you can tell by this part of her prayer. When she says that I rejoice in your salvation, that probably doesn't mean that... Um, that probably means that she's thinking not only of giving birth to Samuel. She's probably thinking more broadly of all the things that God has done for her. And not just her, but for uh, all of his people. And he thinks, uh, she also thinks of t- other acts of salvation in which God actually has defeated uh, military enemies in battle. So if you look at verse 4 here, she says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So if you look at the first half of verse 4, you might think, what does God breaking the bows of enemies have to do with you getting pregnant and giving birth to Samuel? It seems like there's a little bit of, of distance here. And on the, on the surface, there is. But I think what's, what Hannah is thinking is that God hearing my prayer, God hearing the, the prayers of a needy person and acting in power on my behalf is just one example of God's salvation and the advance of God's kingdom. Because Sam, she asked for Samuel not just for herself, not just for her own satisfaction, not even for her own, um, even good desires to be a mother. She asked for Samuel also to give him back to the Lord, to do the work of God and to advance the kingdom. At the end of Hannah's prayer, we'll come back to this in a second, you can see that she has a vision for even the entire world. Yes, she cares about her own family and her own son, and she dedicates him back to the Lord. But notice that she seems to have an idea of what the Lord is doing in the entire world and in the future, and of how God's kingdom is advancing step by step in big ways and in seemingly small ones through her own pregnancy and birth. Look at verse 10. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So she knows that there's going to be a time in which God judges all the nations. And then she adds, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She knows that God's kingdom is coming. And she's already a part of it. And, and uh, she's, uh, she, she brings all of that um, into, her, uh, into her prayer. Uh, there's a few other things in her prayer that we can go back to and, and learn from. Um, in this middle section of her prayer, in verses uh, 5 and 6, and that's the part that includes the statement about uh, the Lord bringing to death and to life and to Sheol and out of Sheol, she emphasizes that God remembers the humble. He lifts up the humble. He saves the humble. 
But then he, on the other hand, he humbles and brings down the proud. So notice how like in verse five, actually it already kind of started in verse four. He's going to give a bunch of contrasts in a row. All right, so in verse four, aside from the military uh, uh, battle aspect of it, notice how it's the mighty whose bows are broken. But then the weak, they get, are strengthened. Um, I think implied here is because the Lord is giving them strength and they look to the Lord for strength. And then in the next uh, verse, she's going to give some more similar kinds of pairs. She says, those who are full, those who have enough to eat, usually, they're the, they're the ones now that don't have enough. But on the other hand, those who were hungry previously, they're not hungry anymore. Why? Answer is the same again. Because they, in their need, they presumably cried out to God and God helped them. And then in the second half of verse 5, she speaks uh, something that is more closer to home for her. Right? So she says, the barren woman has born seven. She didn't have seven. She just had one. But again, she's seeing her experience as part of something bigger uh, that God does and of God's works and salvation in general. Whereas the one who has many children is forlorn. Uh, you can sort of uh, uh, see how this plays off of her own experience with the rival wife, Penina, in her own household. Now, why are all these things true? Right? She doesn't say exactly in verse 4 and 5, why is it that the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble get strength? Why, are it, why is that that those who are usually full don't have enough to eat, but then those who are hungry aren't hungry anymore? Why is it that uh, a barren woman now has seven, but the one who has a lot of kids is now, um, is now forsaken? Um, I've already been saying it, but in verse 6, she makes it even more clear. It's because of the Lord. How does that happen? How is it that the, that the proud are humbled and the humble are honored and lifted up and provided for? It's because of God. It's because of the Lord. It's because of his power. It is because of his sovereignty. And so in verses 6 and 7, she's going to emphasize the action, uh, the, uh, God's own actions, the Lord's own works. So whereas in verses 4 and 5, she didn't quite, she didn't really say, uh, didn't directly mention the Lord. Once you get to verses 6 and 7, she emphasizes the Lord over and over and over again. So you see that in verse 6. It says, the Lord kills or puts to death and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. So it's like she's kind of uh, explaining a little bit more how verses 4 and 5 can be true. Because God is sovereign and he remembers those who look to him. And Hannah herself had experienced that. When she prayed, if you were to look back in chapter 1, she asked the Lord, Lord, please remember me. And if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And then the same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1 says that the Lord remembered her. And she fulfilled her end of the vow um, as well. Now, how does this? How are we going to tie this into verse six, which we're uh, paying special attention to today on this Resurrection Sunday? Oh, well, let's review it for a second. It says once again that the Lord brings down to Sheol, or the grave, or the place of the dead, and He brings up again. Now, what does she mean by that? Um, I think by itself it may be a little bit hard to tell. But at the very least, it's an example of God's power over life and death. Right? The previous line had just said, He brings down, He puts to death, and He brings to life. 
But then saying that he brings down to Sheol and then brings up, that's a little bit different. All right, so we can say broadly that God has power over life and death. We believe that. But then Hannah's kind of giving a, a more specific example in the second half of verse 6. Right? So it's, it's almost like she's saying, not only does God have power over life and death, he, brings, he, call, he, he knows when a person dies he, and he gives life to a person, but specifically he has the power not only to bring someone down to death, but also bring that person, also to deliver that person from death. If you bring a person down to the grave, to the place of the dead, and then you take them out again, that sounds a little bit like life from the dead. So why would she say that here? Um, I guess it, it does fit her um, belief in the Lord's power. Certainly if God is sovereign and all-powerful, he can do anything, including raising someone from the dead. I think that this may also relate to her experience of barrenness and of giving birth to a child. So I'm going to show you some verses to try to uh, fill in the gap here um, as to why Hannah might have said that God can bring someone out of the grave or bring someone out of the place of the dead uh, and why that, how that relates to her own birth of Samuel. Um, it turns out that, uh, and hopefully this will help us appreciate the resurrection in terms of God's own character and works in general and his power. Uh, it turns out that being able to bear children um, in the Bible um, is a very important thing. Uh, why is that? Well, because from the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them some commands. We probably remember, right? What was the very first command that God gave the human race? Anyone want to, anyone know or willing to say, what did God tell the human race to do at the very beginning in Genesis 1? Yes, to be fruitful and multiply. So that command was at the very, it's, it's at the very beginning and, 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 and uh, foundation for what God told human beings to do. But of course, if once sin enters the world, everything gets a lot harder, including being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, which is why sometimes you have barrenness described in the Bible and why we still see it in, in today's world and, and, and in between all that time as well. Um, so you have passages like this one that actually describe um, being able to be fruitful and multiply, being able to bear children as a sign of God's, uh, as, as a sign of God's blessing. So look at this passage. He says, you shall serve the Lord and he will bless your bread and your water. So this is all positive, right? If you obey God, says the preceding context, I will take sickness away from you and none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. And I will fulfill the number of your days. All right. So if Israel had obeyed God well, then for the most part, they would not experience much uh, barrenness or miscarriage. And this kind of passage comes up more than once. Uh, here's another one, Deuteronomy 7, 13 to 15. Uh, the Lord, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb. That is, he will be fruitful and multiply. And not just that, but your crops, uh, your livestock, etc. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness. Uh, uh, and you will be blessed by him. All right, so blessing and God's blessing and even salvation and, and barrenness, not being able to have children, they don't, 
Uh, they don't fit. They conflict in these in these passages. Now we know that as Christians today, it's uh, and even people have known for a long time that it's not always that easy or straightforward. But these that's what these passages are saying, at least for Israel back in their time. Now here's another couple passages. In some passages, barrenness is linked uh, not only to uh, uh, to the absence of blessing, but even more directly to death. Um, not because it is death, but it's just, just because it has some connections to death. So there's this time in which Elisha the prophet was called upon to help. And here's the situation. There's these people living in a city, and uh, the city itself is nice, but the water is bad, says Second Kings 2.19. And because the water is bad, the land is unfruitful. We don't know other details. That's just what all we have is what this passage tells us. So then the prophet says, okay, bring me a new bowl and put some salt in it. So they do so. And then he goes to a spring of water, uh, throws the salt in it and says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. All right. So the problem apparently that this city was having was not just that the water was bad and not just that the land was unfruitful, but apparently there was also death and miscarriage because of this bad water. So in other words, all these things are kind of getting mixed together here. You have unfruitful land, you have bad water, you have death, and you have a hard time having children. Um, now here's another one that I think is probably even more direct. I'll, I'll summarize the main point and then I'll show it to you in this passage. In Romans 4, 17 to 19, um, the birth of Isaac is treated as life from the dead. Let's look at the passage. So this is Paul teaching the Roman church in us, and he's talking about Abraham's faith. And one of the things that God had said to Abraham is that I have made you the father of many nations. Of course, he was really old. So was his wife. They didn't have any kids at that time. To say that was really bold and required faith from Abraham. But God said it to him anyway, and it says that Abraham believed in God. And then go straight, straight to this text here. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, he called Abraham a father of all many nations when he didn't even have a single kid. But then Paul also describes this as this is the same God who gives life from the dead. How does that tie in? Keep looking at verses 18 and 19. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations as he had been told by God, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. And this is the most important part. He considered his own body, which was dead or as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the death of Sarah's womb. So when I put in the word death there, that's a translation from uh, from the Greek. Okay, so permit me that one time here because your uh, ESV or Bible might not say that. But the word is death there. Now, why, why does that matter? Because what Paul is saying here is that Abraham's body at that age, he wasn't actually dead. But in terms of bearing children, his body was dead. Likewise, Sarah at her age, her womb was also dead. But they were able to have a child, Isaac. So what is this? What's, what's the point here? It's as though the birth of Isaac is sort of like an example of God bringing life from the dead. 
because Abraham's body, it was dead. Sarah's womb was dead. But they still were able to produce life that is Isaac. Now, if that's true, then Hannah's own experience of not being able to have children before, of being barren, but of praying to God and God answering her in a miraculous way and giving birth to Samuel, that is also a kind of life from the dead. So Hannah wasn't dead, right? But she wasn't able to have children. And when she had Samuel, just like any mother who would have a child, it's, a bringing, it's not just giving birth, but it's a new life. It's bringing of a new life into, into the world. And so when we think all the way back to Hannah's statement, sorry, yeah, there we go, that God brings down to Sheol and God brings up from the grave, it does still sort of or indirectly relate to her own birth of Samuel. Because she couldn't bear children, she couldn't bring this new life into the world and 1 Samuel chapter 1 even says that the Lord had closed her womb. It was God's sovereignty all of the time. But at God's time and also through Hannah's prayer at the same time, he remembered her and allowed her to bear life into this world. And so whereas her previous experiences in trying to bear a child were sort of like... Um, Though they were so frustrated, it was sort of like, um, uh, uh, like a sort of a sort of death. Her being able to give birth to Samuel was a way that God allowed her to bring uh, life where previously there was none. And so, for her to say that God brings down to the place of the dead and God can bring up uh, again from the dead, it actually still fits uh, her experience. And on top of that, earlier when she had was rejoicing in the Lord over um, giving birth to Samuel and she described God's victory over enemies, that even that, I think, is appropriate as well. You might think, how does giving birth to a baby help you win a battle? Well, uh, if you ask that question, I'm glad you did, because the, the birth of Jesus is often described as a victory over God's enemies. Um, I'll read you another verse. Uh, I didn't include it. But it's in, in uh, Isaiah 9, 4 through 6. It says, The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. In other words, Israel is being freed from their enemies. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So why is Israel being delivered from their enemies? How are they being delivered? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. If it's Jesus himself that's born, then that is victory. It's not that baby Jesus is going to go in and fight battles. But he's going to fight a battle and win by dying on the cross for the sins of the world, even you and me. And we, and on top of that, when he, he, he rises from the dead, he shows that death is defeated as well. 
Um, It's his resurrection that most clearly shows that death is defeated. Sometimes we might wonder, you know, if Jesus already paid for our sins on the cross, then how does the resurrection fit into that? Um, Our sins are already paid for, right? Well, there's, there's multiple reasons, but one of them is that if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, how do we know that death is defeated? Right? If he died and was only buried and didn't rise, how do we have the confidence that death, that enemy, has been defeated? I don't think we too. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, death is defeated as well. And so we can learn from Hannah, this godly woman from a thousand years before Jesus was born, who knew more than perhaps a lot of us might give her credit for. She knew not only that God is sovereign over life and death, but she declared that God brings down to the grave and he brings up. And we celebrate God bringing Jesus up from the grave on the third day this Easter. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this Easter Sunday. Um, Really, it's every Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we thank you for days like these in which we give additional attention, uh, as we should, uh, to the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus. It demonstrates your great power, your victory over death. It gives us hope that in Christ, we too have victory over death. We need not fear death. We need not fear any enemy because Christ has conquered all of them. And we pray that you would encourage us um, in, these, uh, in these days in our world that are filled with anxieties and uncertainties in a lot of different ways. Father, fix our thoughts and hearts on the eternal gospel that does not change and the eternal life that you've so graciously given to us. Help us, Lord, to seek you in prayer for every need that we have and at the same time to know that when you answer them, it's not just for us but it's a part of the advance of your kingdom. And it's just an, it's another example of the great salvation that you've given to us in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.